Social innovation addresses messy social problems, things like urban transport, indigenous disadvantage, poverty, climate change, or the refugee crisis. Where should the answers come from? Is there a hybrid approach beyond domestic policy, foreign aid, or corporate responsibility programs? From the University of Sydney Business School, this is Sydney Business Insights, the podcast that explores the future of business. Hi, I'm Sandra Peter, and today we talk to Jared Ormiston, who is Assistant Professor in Social Entrepreneurship at the Maastricht Centre for Entrepreneurship at Maastricht University. Jared's action research involves various activities with the Entrepreneurship Development Network Asia and working with social enterprises to enhance their impact. Welcome, Jared, and thank you for talking to us today. Yeah, no worries. It's great to be here. What is social innovation? The place I always start when I'm talking about something like social innovation, and I guess it's the way that I start all of my courses on social entrepreneurship and sustainable entrepreneurship as well, is to talk about these persistent or wicked social problems. So in a domestic setting, if you look at things like child protection, urban transport, indigenous disadvantage, use of natural resources, two bigger global issues like climate change, poverty, treatment of asylum seekers and refugees, this sort of broader refugee crisis. I guess the sustainable development goals by the UN are another example of the type of wicked problems that we would talk about. And the nature of these types of problems are that they're complex, they're messy, they're interconnected, and they need multifaceted solutions. So the idea of social innovation comes in. It's about how can you address these wicked problems through something new, something novel, new ideas, new practices, new partnerships. And so the idea of social innovation is about how do you shift these unjust social structures and the very nature of it then is very much political, socially motivated in a lot of ways. They sound like very complex problems. Why is it important for government, private enterprise and non-profit sectors to collaborate on social innovation and how can they collaborate to address these issues? If you look at these different problems, you can see that all sectors of the economy have been focusing on them over many years. So from public policy activities, social sector activities, private sector initiatives. So in the public sector, you've had a lot of domestic policy and foreign aid programs focused on these initiatives. You see the establishment of sort of local community-based organizations, nonprofit organizations, international NGOs trying to combat these issues. And you're seeing these sort of applications of corporate social responsibility, especially with these rebranded modern approaches to CSR, things like creating shared value and these bottom of the pyramid concepts, all trying to address these wicked problems. What's important is to not confine action on these problems to a specific sector and see how hybrid approaches can work that really get at multi-sector initiatives that can start blurring the boundaries between these sort of what I guess are traditionally siloed public, private and social sectors. So there's this argument these multi-sector initiatives call for addressing these problems. And I guess when you look at why that's necessary, there's this idea that these problems are becoming more urgent and complex. You know, you take the refugee crisis and climate change, for example, there's a need to involve more organisations in this space. And so we need these multi-party activities. And then also just from an organisational perspective of why organisations will get involved in this cross-sector collaboration, it makes sense for them in terms of A, being able to address problems that are too difficult for them to address as an individual organisation, But then also it helps them by sort of reducing their uncertainty, their risk, being able to access resources from outside. 
filling gaps in capabilities, etc. So I guess what you're seeing are these sort of collective impact initiatives emerge. And to talk in more concrete terms about this and some sort of specific ways people are coming together, you're seeing a lot happen around funder collaboratives. So seeing groups of funders come together to support the same issue and pool their resources. So a great example of that is the work led by my colleague and my mentor, the late Richard Seymour in Myanmar, and his collaboration with Chichi Nyen, a social entrepreneur over there. They set up something called Edna Myanmar, which is the Entrepreneurship Development Network Asia. And this was funded by one of these funder collaboratives. So it was funded by Lyft, who is the Livelihoods and Food Security Trust Fund set up in Myanmar. And basically, this was a donor consortium between a bunch of aid organisations and the Mitsubishi Corporation. So you saw UK aid, Netherlands government, Australian aid, EU, US aid, France, Switzerland, Luxembourg, New Zealand, Irish aid involved. And basically this funder collaborative, instead of going into Myanmar when things opened up again with all of their separate agendas and separate small projects, they went in with a big budget, US 400 million, to focus on about 150 large projects. So the focus of what they were doing, things around increasing incomes, increasing resilience for the poor, improving nutrition for women, men and children, and enhancing policies around sort of public expenditure. So you had these aid agencies, Mitsubishi Corporation, then collaborated with the Burmese government, so Ministry of Agriculture, Livestock and Irrigation and the Ministry of Planning. And what they managed to do was sort of come together with these big projects work with local and international NGOs, civil society organisations, academic institutions and the private sector to focus on these big initiatives. So the work led by Richard and Chi Chi was focusing on educating 10,000 grassroots entrepreneurs across Myanmar through this six-month mentoring program. I've been doing some work on that very recently, doing the impact measurement of it. And we've seen that through this sort of multi-sector initiative. We've seen 1,000 new enterprises started, and 2,000 existing enterprises sort of grow their incomes, grow their activities, start employing more people. And so it's great to see those types of projects happening as opposed to the smaller projects, which you might often see, which might focus on, say, only 100 entrepreneurs or something like that. So how can you do something at large scale by bringing together these pools of capital? Just to talk briefly on some other examples, beyond those funder collaboratives, you're seeing things happen around private nonprofit partnerships. So in the Australian context, You see Westpac collaborating with Many Rivers, who's a microfinance institution focused in the Indigenous space. So you've got Westpac providing all the back office support, allowing Many Rivers to spend their time focusing on what they have skills and capabilities in, in terms of working closely with Indigenous communities to provide microfinance. You're seeing multi-stakeholder initiatives is what they'd be called, focused on more voluntary activities, people coming together. I've got a master's student in the Master of Sustainability at the moment doing some work on modern slavery in Australia. And that's another great example of this cross-sector collaboration where you've got this responsible construction leadership group, which is a collaboration between the New South Wales Office of Environment and Heritage, engaging with various NGOs. And then you've got Lendlease, Murvac, John Holland coming together, the sort of leading private sector players looking to address the potential risks posed and the ethical issues associated with modern slavery in construction industry supply chains. So they're the sort of things that are happening a lot more these days. And then I guess the bigger thing, which is quite exciting, is what's being called these collective impact initiatives, where you're seeing these long-term commitments between essentially all the actors in a space coming together with a common agenda and trying to develop common measurement frameworks to actually tackle some of these social issues. This would be a sort of successful example, I think, what's happening 
in the impact investing space, so the international impact investing space, and then also more specifically looking at Australia, what we're seeing there, impact investing is this novel approach to financing social enterprises and sustainable enterprises where you have impact investors who are looking to achieve financial returns alongside intentional and measurable social and environmental impact. And on a global scale, we're seeing all of these guys come together. So a lot of these collective impact initiatives need an international backbone organization to coordinate the activities to help developing these common measurement frameworks and keep this ongoing communication happening. So you've seen the Global Impact Investing Network set up with 200 international members. So they're developing a common measurement framework around these impact reporting and investment standards. They're mapping their activities to the sustainable development goals and they're annually tracking the progress. And then if you look specifically At what's happened in Australia, you saw the emergence of this impact investing sector be set up by the Australian government or seeded by the Australian government in many ways. So back in 2010, you had 20 million Australian dollars provided by the Australian government through its social innovation unit, which then became part of the Department of Employment. And it set up these social enterprise development investment funds. And these funds were there to sort of test this impact investing market in Australia and try and build the capacity of social enterprises. And so it was this great example of this cross-sector collaboration. This is how I first got excited in looking at this idea of cross-sector action. So you had this seed funding coming from government that then mobilised matched investment from a bunch of superannuation funds, sort of international social banks, philanthropic foundations, and a series of high net worth individuals and private investors. And then these intermediaries were set up with this, what became $40 million to provide debt and equity finance to Australian social enterprises. And trying to target, you know, market rate returns between 6 to sort of 13, 14% whilst delivering social impact. And then what you see come around that, so you had these sort of hybrid intermediaries that were set up, the private investors, foundations, government bodies involved, and then a bunch of sort of institutional entrepreneurs emerge around this to help support the growth of that market. That sort of wrapped up this project at the moment, but over the five, six years of that seed of piloting phase, You saw about over 60 investments into social enterprises with impacts on over 9,000 vulnerable people in Australia and a lot of positive employment outcomes for over about 600 people. So big impact coming from these cross-sector collaborations. So what are some specific examples that these funds have invested in? What seems to be the main focus in Australia is this notion of meaningful work and Uh, What seems to be a dominant business model for social enterprise or an impact model, more appropriately, is this idea of work integrated social enterprises. So looking at how social enterprises can engage running sort of traditional business activities, whether that's a catering enterprise, cafes, we're seeing a lot of them in the hospitality space. These type of enterprises that can provide employment and training opportunities for vulnerable groups. If you take the Indigenous space and very close to home there at the University of Sydney, got the Gardener's Lodge and Auntie Beryl and her team are providing training and job opportunities for Indigenous youth. In Melbourne, you've got a similar model that's been set up by Mission Australia through Charcoal Lane. The darling of the impact investment movement is some of the equity deals done with Street down in Melbourne, and they've got a work integrated social enterprise, which is uh, a combination of a bunch of cafes, a coffee roaster, and a catering business, focusing on working with youth who experienced homelessness. 
And that model was actually built out of the Koto model, the no one train one model in Vietnam, which again is another example of where some of this impact investment has gone to. It's run by Jim Pham, this Australian Vietnamese entrepreneur, working with providing employment opportunities for kids off the streets there. In one of our programs at the University of Sydney, we've done a lot of work working with Koto. If there's any undergraduate students listening to this, there's potential to get involved in January next year, coming over to Vietnam and working with organizations like Koto to try and expand their impact. And then we're also seeing this stuff happen in the refugee space. You've got the Bread and Butter Project, which is a collaboration with Burke Street Bakery, working with refugees to provide employment opportunities. And again, Settlement Services International, who's very active in this refugee space and the social enterprise space, are doing a lot to set up social enterprises focused on catering and staples bags and, and food justice that can provide employment opportunities for vulnerable groups in Australia. Really big impact coming through. And yet, over the last few years, we've seen quite a few people argue for answers that could come purely from the private sector or purely from the non-profit sector. So if sectors don't collaborate, what can be some of the drawbacks of not doing this in the long term? There's a lot going on in the shared value conversations. There's obviously groups at the University of Sydney focused on profits and poverty. My ex-colleague Ranjit Vula doing some work in the auto bottom of the pyramid space. And whilst the work they're doing is obviously focusing on collaboration and engaging across sectors as well, I think there's a danger in holding up the private sector as the champion of solving these social issues. This is some of the problems with the sort of Porter and Kramer work where they sort of celebrate the role of market-oriented approaches and the role of the commercial logics in solving these social issues. If you take the case of microfinance, so providing small loans to the poor, group lending, a big innovation there around this group lending, focusing on women entrepreneurs and et cetera. It sort of began with a very much hybrid approach that was combining development logics, engaging with a lot of nonprofit organizations with these commercial logics and engaging with the private sector. And what you saw over time was that this idea of microfinance proved itself very successful according to the commercial logic. So basically, as Muhammad Yunus would call it, being a banker to the poor proved to be a really strong business model. So you saw people getting excited by these really high repayment rates, by the numbers of borrowers worldwide with these high numbers of loans going out. The impact side of things on the development logics didn't really play out. There wasn't cohesive insights on whether microfinance and providing access to capital was actually alleviating poverty. And so what you saw, you saw more of these commercial players get involved, a lot of private players get involved in the space. And then we sort of start to see what became the dark side of microfinance. So these really high profile examples where you had a couple of these microfinance institutions have their IPOs and make a lot of money out of the space despite relying on a lot of grant funding in setting up their activities. So you saw a lot of individuals profit from this activity. And so that sort of raised some ethical questions. And then again, in India, you saw some high profile cases of suicides stemming from the pressures of microfinance. So in some ways, the sort of financialization of microfinance and this conversion of third world woman in many ways into this asset class to be risk managed had some very dark impacts in the end. And I think that is the challenge when perhaps a certain sector's logic, especially in this case, the sort of commercial sector logic is allowed to dominate. A lot of my research in the impact investing space is looking at that. There's a worry that venture capital logics and this way of engaging with social enterprises that stems from mainstream finance 
is starting to pervade. And that's very much led by a bunch of these individuals who've got a lot of experience in mainstream finance who are now wanting to do something good in their lives, jumping into the impact investing space, but bringing over too many of the practices and ways of being and doing things from mainstream finance that have actually contributed to some of the social issues that impact investing is trying to address. So you think collaboration would be the answer to some of the issues that you've just raised? I think bringing the sector together is important. A big thing that's come out of my research, though, is the role of what I'm calling multilingual brokers. Multilingual in that they have the ability to speak the language of multiple sectors. So what seems to be working well in the impact investing space in Australia, in the UK at least, is that you've got individuals who spent time throughout their careers working across different sectors. So they've got experience in mainstream finance, but then they've also potentially worked in the public sector. So doing various government initiatives, potentially focused on entrepreneurship, social enterprise, employment, etc. And they've also had experience working with various charities and NGOs. And so you're seeing these people start to populate some of the intermediary organisations organizations and they're really able to facilitate practice across these different sectors and in some ways ensure that by speaking the languages and being able to adapt to the practices of the different sectors that no one sectoral approach overly dominates. So what's next for you? Starting to do a lot of these things, I guess, is the next thing. So if I think to the two big projects I'm working on the moment, I'm doing some work in the refugee entrepreneurship space. So I've been working with an organization called Catalyzer in Australia, who's working with refugees through an entrepreneurship mentoring program, trying to set up migrant and refugee businesses, but as an avenue towards meaningful work. So this idea of the role of entrepreneurship cross-sector collaboration in creating meaningful work is sort of core to what I'm doing now. So working here in Maastricht now, building on this catalyzer model, I'm working with a non-profit organization, the Refugee Project Maastricht, and we're collaborating with the local municipality and engaging a bunch of private sector players as mentors to work with entrepreneurs here from the refugee community who are finding it difficult to find meaningful work. So looking at entrepreneurship as an avenue to meaningful work for them. And then also working with social enterprises who are wanting to work alongside refugees to create employment opportunities. The other project is in Cambodia at the moment. So this builds on some of the work I was talking about before that was led by the late Richard Seymour in Myanmar. What we're doing in Cambodia is we're working with farmers in the northwest of the country. They're faced by this rice crisis at the moment. And we're looking at the role of entrepreneurship and community-based entrepreneurship to see how these farmers can diversify into new crops, businesses, and enterprise activities. And again, we're really looking at the role of cross-sector collaboration there. So we've got a collaboration happening between the University of Sydney, Maastricht University, and two local universities, Manche University and the University of Bunabong. And we're working with some local foundations, some international NGOs, working closely with local government and then private sector players in the value chain to see how we can explore new opportunities for community-based entrepreneurship to allow farmers to expand into other enterprise activities beyond rice farming. Thank you for talking to us today. Thank you. It was really fun talking about this. You've been listening to Sydney Business Insights, the University of Sydney Business School podcast about the future of business. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can visit us at sbi.sydney.edu.au and hear our entire podcast archive, read articles, and watch video content that explore the future of business.